You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit stonegate-church.com. Okay, if you've got a Bible, let's go uh, Philippians chapter 2 is where we're going to be. Um, I have this ridiculous story that I wanted to tell. I just don't have enough time, so I'm going to give you a really concise version. The story goes as such, I almost burnt down our apartment complex by lighting our stove on fire, it's a true story, while attempting to cook dinner for Trisha for Valentine's Day. <laughs> true story. And um, uh, it, it was ridiculous. We had the fire alarm going off. Literally, there was a point in which that night, I, try, I don't do cooking. I don't ever. So I thought I was going to surprise her. She was going to walk in and I was going to have this awesome meal ready. And I mean, she walked into functional chaos in our kitchen. And so... Um, I tried to do something really nice for her like that on our first Valentine's Day, and um, what, what I realized, looking, there's a whole lot of detail that I, we just don't have time to get to, uh, but basically what I realized is that as, as that was kind of evolving is that um, <laughs> I should have asked for help. In fact, I, I remember distinctly thinking, I need to call somebody right now that knows how to use an oven, because I have no idea how to use an oven. And I need to call somebody who can, who can walk me through some cooking 101 basics that I otherwise did not know, but I chose, but almost immediately as that thought entered my mind of calling to ask somebody for help, another thought entered my mind, and it went something like this. You don't need help, Dan. You are awesome. You are a man. We do not ask for help. People ask us for help, you know? And so... Um, I ended up obeying that voice, thus almost burning apartment complex number six, Turtle Cove, to the ground. True story, there were flames on the stove. And so, um, but, but what, what really the issue is there, it's a really, you know, it's a funny illustration, but what the real issue there is I didn't want to ask for help because there's something inside of me that says when I, when I ask somebody for help or express a need for somebody, what I'm doing is I'm actually defaming the glory of Dan Hutchins to admit that I need somebody to help me with something, right? That I actually might need somebody's help. That, that would, what that would do for me is that would defame my glory. What that actually is, is it's a funny example, but it's a real example of pride in my own life. That there is something inside me that really loves me a lot, that really loves me trying to figure out how to do stuff and not asking other people how to do stuff and not expressing a need for something, but that I just want to try to figure it out on my own and, and ultimately because I love self. And this is an issue for everybody. That pride is an issue for everybody. And I'll just tell you, your greatest enemy in life is pride. Like your greatest enemy in life is not financial bankruptcy or losing your job or us going to war with some nation or you losing your house or something. That the scriptures is going to teach all over the place that your greatest enemy is pride. The greatest enemy to your marriage is pride that's left unfestered, that just kind of goes off and does whatever it wants to. And the issue is not are you or aren't you prideful? You absolutely are prideful. The issue is, where are you prideful and to what extent has pride really corrupted your life? So the issue is not whether you are or are not prideful. The issue is, where is pride in your life and to what extent has it really festered and has it really corrupted? 
And I know that pride is the greatest enemy of your life because um, in the Bible, there's really two big things that it teaches about pride. I'm just taking the, the whole scripture and trying to consolidate it here is that on the one hand, pride is destructive by nature. That Proverbs is going to teach and that James is going to teach that where there is pride in your life, there is soon to be destruction that follows. That where there is pride in a husband's life, that might corrupt the marriage. And that where there is pride in the, in the wife's life, that might corrupt and destroy the marriage if it's just left alone. And that your greatest enemy in life is pride. Your greatest enemy, it wants to destroy how you relate to people. It wants to destroy your relationships with others. It wants to destroy how you lead people as a boss, maybe, or how you are led by people as an employee. It wants to destroy and corrupt your work environment. It wants to corrupt your family. It's your greatest enemy. And the other reason why it's a great enemy is because the the other teaching of, of the scriptures about pride is that God hates prideful people. Like Proverbs is going to say point blank, a haughty spirit is an abomination to God. And later in James, it's going to say that God opposes the proud. So it's not just that pride um, affects your outward relationships and your physical, tangible reality, but it's also that it it cripples your, your capacity to know God. That ultimately what pride does is it robs you of the joy of knowing God. That where there is pride in your life, there is a shrinking of your heart's capacity to know God. So, if pride is your greatest enemy in life, then humility is your greatest friend in life. And if pride seeks to destroy and corrupt, humility, the nature of humility is to strengthen and build up. So there's two teachings of humility, and they just counter the two teachings of of pride. On the one hand, humility, that that it says that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble, that there is a a grace strength that comes from humility. That the greatest gift, men in the room, that you could give your wife is that of humility. That the greatest gift that you could give your wife your work environment, or you could give your children and how you raise them, or you can give your your friendships and relationships, is to clothe yourself with humility. That that is your greatest gift that you can bring people. And if pride is satanic, humility is Christ-like. And it it builds up and it, it gives strength. But more importantly, what humility does is it actually increases our capacity to know God. That just as God looks at at haughty spirits and people as an abomination, he looks at humble people and wants to dwell with humble people. That's exactly what Isaiah 66.2 says. It says, this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. And so humility does two things. It, it strengthens and gives life and it builds up and it also, it also opens up your heart. It, what Paul says in Corinthians, it widens your heart to be able to know God and experience God in a deeper way where the pride pers- prideful person otherwise does not have that capacity. So we're going to talk about pride and humility today. And so um, Philippians chapter 2 
is there is no passage in the Bible that deals with the issue of humility like Philippians 2 does. There's no passage in the Bible that talks about the twofold reality of Jesus Christ like Philippians 2. It talks about the, the unbelievable, breathtaking exaltation of Jesus Christ and the breathtaking and unbelievable, mind-boggling humiliation of Jesus Christ. And it's really cool because we don't just, we're not just called to be humble. We're not just called, Jesus does not just throw on us some abstract truth and say, okay, now you're on your own, go be humble. But he actually exemplifies humility. That Jesus actually enables humility because he is the perfect example of humility. And it's looking at Jesus and the life of Jesus and this sort of dissension of Jesus going from exaltation to humiliation that actually empowers and is the source of of kind of enabling power for us to be humble. And so this is where we're going today. And so um, Philippians chapter 1, I'm going to move quickly because if there's one thing we learned in the first hour, it's that I have too much information. (laughs) That's what we learned in hour one which is never a good feeling when you look at your clock and you're like, oh no, what have I done? So we're going to move faster to get to the good stuff this time. Verse 1, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, and affection and sympathy. And so verse 1, there's three really big statements here. And so Paul is trying to remind you of your identity in Christ. And this is a really key truth. This is a really, really key truth today because we're actually going to, the text is actually going to mention this truth several more times. And so um, what he's saying is on, is number one, that you're in Christ. He's trying to remind you of your identity because people have identity amnesia. They're, they easily forget who they are in Christ and all that they've been given in Christ. And so Paul's essentially saying that you are in Christ, meaning that you have a new identity. That there has been, that when you're saved, you are called from darkness into light. That you go from being a child of wrath, an enemy of God, someone who is on his way to hell, to now looked at by God as a child. So you go from, your, your complete nature changes that there is intrinsically inside of you a nature change when you become saved. This is Paul trying to remind the Philippians of this. He's trying to get them to see that you are a new creation. And this is foundational for humility because you, can't, you don't just try to do humility, but it's out of a firm, firm, acute awareness of your identity in Christ that provides the platform for humility to really go forth in your life. And so point number one is that you are in Christ. He's wanting to remind you of your identity in Christ. And then he says this, that you be encouraged in love. And so whose love is it talking about? There's a great chance that it's talking about God's love for you because that word love is sandwiched between being in Christ and then the next phrase, which is participating in the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. So we've got in this one verse, a, it just, it's, it's a Trinitarian list. It's talking about being in Christ, reference to Jesus, experiencing God's love, referencing God's love, and then, and then participating in the Spirit, referencing the Holy Spirit. All of those things make up your identity in Christ. 
that you're in Christ, that you're loved by God, and that you participate or are, you're indwelled with the Holy Spirit. And so Paul's big passion here is to say, listen, I want, you, I want to remind you of who you are in Christ and all that you've been given in Christ. Because he knows that humans have identity amnesia. We forget who we are in Christ. We start thinking that our identity is, is in something else, like our, our job or our profession or our successes or something else. But so Paul's saying, no, 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 this is who you are. New creation in Christ, indwelt by the Spirit, and you're loved by God. And so, and this is why, if, and so this, this third one being partaking in the Holy Spirit, here's what he's saying. He's saying that if you're a Christian, you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And as me, as I'm a Christian, I'm indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And both of us, all people that are Christians, are indwelt by the same Spirit. It's not like we each have our, our own Holy Spirits that indwell us. We're indwelled by the same Spirit. And this is really important. Because humility takes place in the, context, in the context of other people. And Paul just got done in chapter 1. Really, he was saying, as you're growing in your love for the gospel, get along with people. That's what he just got done saying in verses 27 through 30 of chapter 1. And so he's saying, because you're indwelt by the Spirit of God and I'm indwelt by the same Spirit, we're called to get along with each other. Don't let pride rear its head and affect you. Don't let anger and jealousy and envy break out. Don't let things like that break out. And the reason for it, it's not just because it's the right thing to do. For Paul, it's, it's a deeply theological reason. That if all of us are in Christ and indwelt by the same Spirit, then that should produce inside of us a desire to get along and a desire to grow together in unity. That's really the, the message that he's sending. Then he uses these two words, affection and sympathy. And this is really interesting because it's not like, it's not like Paul gives you a bunch of truths and it's devoid of emotion. Like for Paul, this is a very emotional thing. When he looks at churches and sees them breaking apart and sees jealousy and envy kind of going out, that, cre- that is a deeply emotional thing. He's affected by it. So he loves the churches. I mean, he really, and so this is a very passionate, emotional thing for Paul. It's important for him, for us to know who we are in Christ and for us to live in relations to other people because of our identity. That's really important for him. And so this is a feelings thing for Paul. He fe- he's not just devoid of emotion. He feels it. And I'm no expert on feelings. Because I'm a guy. Sometimes Trisha asks me how I feel. March Madness, that's how I feel. I don't know. All I want to do is watch March Madness. I don't get the question. I don't know. I don't get it. I have a headache. I don't know. <laughs> but for Paul, this is a deeply emotional thing. Like he really feels passionate about this. So much so that he's going to say in verse 2, the first words of verse 2, complete my joy by being of the same mind and having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. 
So he's saying that the culmination of his joy is when he sees other Christians knowing Jesus, knowing their identity in the gospel, in Christ, and living as such in relations to other people. That for Paul is his greatest joy. And notice, this is really interesting, has nothing to do with Paul. That the culmination of his joy has nothing to do with him. He right now is sitting in prison writing this letter. Right now he's sitting there writing in suffering and he's saying I will be, that my joy will be complete if you know who you are in Christ and if you serve others out of your identity in Christ. For him, there, it has nothing, has nothing to do with himself. has nothing to do with his external environment. has nothing to do with him getting out of prison and buying a home and owning possessions, having money. Joy, complete joy for Paul is, has nothing to do with himself. It has everything to do with the church knowing who they are in Jesus and living as such amongst each, other's, amongst each other. But you can take it one step further because Paul, why Paul does care about it, ultimately it's God who is, in, I mean, ultimately it's the Holy Spirit inspiring Paul to write these words. So it's really God that cares about your relations with other people. And I think this is subtle because, you know, maybe you don't think this or maybe you wouldn't articulate this. You shouldn't, you probably wouldn't articulate this as good Christians, but you would think sometimes that maybe God cares more about your personal relationship with him and doesn't care as much about your relationship with others. Like they're two separate categories. But I think for Paul, and we use terminology that doesn't, that helps support this. Like we use things like you've got your vertical relationship with God and you've got your horizontal relationship with people, right? And I think that's, that's okay and that that's might be true, but it gives you the kind of subtle nuance that they're two separate categories. And I think for Paul, they're, one, they're really interrelated. That God doesn't care more about your personal relationship with him and less about your relationship with others. But I think he sees them as almost one and the same, as very interrelated, because if you've been implanted with a new identity, that identity should naturally overflow into how you relate to others. And you can just think of this like a tree. You can't tell the roots of a tree to only affect part of the tree. You can't tell the roots of a tree to affect this branch and not that branch. If they're all connected together, the roots is going to nourish and provide nutrients for all parts of the tree because there's an organic connection there. This is Paul trying to look at the church and saying, listen, you are, you are in Christ. You're an identified in Christ. And because of that, there should be an organic connection in how you relate to people and how that manifests itself in the church. And so this is a huge deal for Paul. And then he goes on in verse, um, in verse 2, he says, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, by, being, by having the same love, being in full accord, and being of one mind. And this pretty much states the main point in four different ways. And so what, what he uses words like mind and love, and this is like the thinking faculties of your brain that you're to focus on who you are in Christ and how you would serve others as a result. And then, you're, and then he uses the word love and that focuses on like the feeling faculties of your heart. That you're supposed to feel, that you're supposed to desire, that it's supposed to be emotionally affected. So basically what he's saying is with your whole being, with everything, with your mind, with your cognitive thinking faculties and with your feeling kind of emotional faculties, Think about your identity in Christ and think about how that would manifest itself as you relate to others. So it's a, it's a whole being issue. And so as a result of that, we get to a really, really big passage, a really big verse in verse 3. 
And that is this right here. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. So we've got two diseases that he gives us. And really these two diseases make up for us the essence of pride. The first disease is rivalry and the second is conceit. And so these two things are not separate either. They very much so relate to each other. They're a little bit different in how they work themselves out, but ultimately they're very related so that if conceit is an inward attitude of the heart that loves self and glorifies self and worships self, rivalry are simply the actions that overflow from a heart filled with self. So they go together. So let's just take conceit first. Conceit is the inward, self-loving, self-glorifying, self-aggrandizing heart disposition where you just want other people to look at you and glorify you and you want to glorify you and you'll do anything you can to hold on to any piece of glory that you have for your name. There's just this thing inside of you that goes, I want to build my name up to people. And this happens to you. Like you just watch yourself when you introduce yourself to someone new. We talked about this the other day. That there, there is probably in your mind <laughs> a certain couple of things about yourself that you really want them to know about you, right? Like there's a couple of things that maybe it's a job or maybe it's a past success where you just like, man, I'm going to try to steer the conversation. I'm going to try to steer it in such a way when I meet somebody that the ultimate culmination of the conversation is Look at my high school sports career, right? It's a great football game that's on TV. I wish, wish he would have done it like I did it when I was a varsity running back back in the day on my varsity football team. Like, your friends are like, dude, you're 38. That was 20 years ago. But you know how this happens, though. You know that inside your brain, when you meet somebody new, you want to steer the conversation in such a way where the ultimate conversation, the point of it, the climactic element, is you and your accomplishments so that they can look at you and your accomplishments and give you glory and so that you can receive glory. And all of that is a heart filled with conceit. In fact, another word for conceit, a literal translation, is empty glory. That where there is a heart that really loves the self, there is, that is the road to emptiness. That as you're, it's ironic that as you're trying to fill yourself up with you, you're actually on a road to emptiness. Empty glory. That's another translation. Vain glory. It's another translation. Then you get to rivalry. And rivalry is just the outward, physical, tangible manifestation of a heart that's filled with conceit. And so I'll give you just a couple of examples here. Um, See, see which category you fit in here. Because conceit is in your heart, you get jealous and envious of other people. So rather than being able to appreciate the success of others, you tear their name down. Jealousy and envy are often results of a heart filled with conceit. Because your heart is bent with conceit, filled with conceit, you have to be right all the time. You're overly opinionated. So you, you get angry about stuff that really doesn't matter and you lose your temper and when someone opposes your opinion, it's like that's the worst thing in the world. How could they ever oppose my opinion? That's, rival, that's a rivalry sort of action overflowing out of a heart bent with conceit, filled with conceit. What about this one? This is on the other end of the, of the spectrum because here's the nature of sin. sin. Sin pushes to the extremes. That's what it does. 
So on one extreme, you have an, a high person that has a too high of opinion of himself, that has an overly positive view of himself. And then what about this person, though? Like, maybe there's people in here who are, you're just unbelievably discouraged about past failures to the point where you think you're worthless. Like, you think, I am worthless. I've done this. I've done all this stuff. I've failed here. I have, my reputation has been, it's been drugged through the mud on this occasion. And as a result, I feel so discouraged and disappointed. And really depression is what this is. It's a, and that, the, in, the, in much the same way, that's the same root in your heart that's just going to the other end of the spectrum. It's the same self-conceited heart that just manifests itself in a different way. So you've got these two extremes where one says, I'm above you and I'm over you and my successes and I'm awesome and I'm overly opinionated. And you've got this other person that says, I'm worthless because of my failures. Both of which are identity amnesias. This person has forgotten that their identity is not in their successes. This person has forgotten that their identity is not in their failures. And this is the great thing about the gospel. That while life and circumstances and things may go up and down and feel really unstable, that the one thing that is absolutely stable is your very identity in Jesus. That never changes. Never changes. And that really is the, that's really where humility has to begin. That's really where humility has to begin. And so we get to humility, nothing from rivalry or evil conceit, but in humility, count others as more significant than yourselves. Humility is not a personality disposition. It's not like a quiet or pleasant disposition. Personality, it's, it's a much deeper than that. It transcends that. That you can actually be a soft-spoken, quiet person and still be really prideful. In fact, you, you can actually want to be humble so that other people would look at you and say, man, that guy's really humble. That in itself is pride. That's how sin works. And so we've got to be careful here that, that humility, it's to be exalted. But man, if you go after humility for wrong reasons, it's the same. It's pride. It's pride. And so Paul defines what humility is. He says, humility is counting others as more significant than yourself. Another definition that I really like is, humility is an honest assessment of yourself in light of God's holiness and your sinfulness. And so this is really interesting. This is, where, this is where we've got the two extremes, where the gospel and humility takes these two extremes and brings them back into right balance. And so if sin takes things to the extreme, the gospel brings things back and gives them right balance. And so right here, you've got, on the one hand, a person who has an overly positive view of themselves and who is, just thinks they're great and who has major identity amnesia in that their identity is in their successes and in what they've done well. The gospel says, if you've done anything well, if you have anything to offer, if you did anything good, if you succeeded in anything, it's only because God graciously allowed you to be good at whatever it is that you've been good at. And so true humility reminds you of that. When you have successful things happen in your life and when you have points of great that happens, what humility does is it says, you know what? This is not about me and my goodness. This is about God who has graciously allowed me to succeed at whatever. So your identity is not compromised in successes. 
So your identity is not compromised in a position. Your identity is not compromised in growing up, growing in the organization or getting a raise or whatever. Your identity is still rooted and grounded in Christ. And so it keeps you from going to the extreme and having identity amnesia that way. And then the other way, and if you look real carefully at verse 4, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And this is real dangerous here because what, what he, he didn't say, it's wrong to completely forego your own interests. Like he didn't say, you shouldn't even consider yourself. You shouldn't even, I mean, you should just think of yourself as worthless. That's not what he's saying here. He's saying, no, you, you can consider your own interests, just not as above other people. So it takes this person from over here and it redefines them. It says, you're not worthless. That even though you've had a past that's been full of failure and rejection and troubles or whatever, that your identity is still in Christ and that Christ still looks at you and says, I love you. I don't, it's not about what you've done or not done for me. It's because of the cross. And that is what pulls this person back to right balance here. You see the difference there? And so we've got sin pushing it this way and the gospel and humility going, it's not about you. Whether it's your failures or whether it's your your successes, it's just not about you. And so what this does, this is the beautiful thing about this, because it brings it, because in both extremes, the gospel and humility, what it ends up doing is it takes us to where our eyes go off of us and our successes or off of us and our failures. And it actually gives us the capacity now to look genuinely at others and their interests. That's what it does. By pulling the extremes back into right balance, it actually gives you the capacity to look genuinely to the needs of others. Because your need, every, every need that you could possibly need has already been met in the gospel. So he's connecting identity and things. And I think that's really cool. I think that's really cool. And so let's, let's look at verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And so we've got kind of a shift here in the passage. So we've gone from verses 1 through 4. And I mean, verse 5 really kind of shifts us into a new direction. It's kind of the, the transitional verse. Um, but he says, now listen closely here. Have this mind, non-rivalrous, non-conceited, in humility, which has already been given to you in Christ. So it's not like you have to go outside somewhere and try to find it and bring it in. This is part of the package that God gave you in giving you a new identity that the mind of Christ is already there. And so in other words, to say it like this, all of a Christian's life is simply becoming who you are. It's not trying to become something you're not. It's living out of your identity. It's trying to understand who you are in Christ and how that would manifest itself into the world and in your, in your life. And so this is Paul saying, have this mind among yourselves. And then he uses that two words, among yourselves. That this is community, he brings a community kind of, kind of element to it that it's not supposed to culminate on you. Like, it would be wrong for you to walk out of here and go, humility, now that's a good idea. And then it just end there. But humility, the goal here is that you would reflect humility in your speech. That it would be, that it would affect how you relate among other people. 
in and amongst the believing body. That humility, that, that your marriage would reflect humility. That how you treat your wife would reflect humility and how you treat your husband would reflect humility and how you raise your kids and how you work at your job and how you lead other people. That, that, that's the goal here. That it's among other people that we want humility to really flesh itself out. Yeah. And so I want to read a, a really good quote. Let me find it here. This is great. Everyone has in himself the mind of a king by claiming everything for himself. See, here is pride. Afterwards, from a foolish admiration of ourselves arises contempt of the brethren. And so far we are, or so far are we from where Paul here mentions that one can hardly endure that others should be on a level with him, for there is no one that is not eager to have superiority. And this is the natural bent of every human heart, is I want power. I want control. This is exactly what Adam's heart was. Adam, the first sin was, I want to be as smart as God. This was the sin of Satan. Satan's sin was, I want to be equal with God. And I read a quote this week and it said, this is so true. Every person would rather be a king in a cottage of, with one servant than a servant in the palace of a great king. That the natural bend of the human heart is not humility, but it is self-exalting, self-loving. But Jesus does things way different, way different. In fact, he lays out a path that we're to follow that cuts against the grain of everything that we as humans naturally would think and feel is right. And one thing, you know, one thing that every culture has in, in common, one thing, every culture, humility is seen as a vice in every single culture and pride and self, self-glorifying is seen as a virtue in every culture. Like the Greco-Roman culture here, Paul is writing, the Romans are prideful people. The culture in America and every culture between then, the nature of human beings is one of me, is one of me-centeredness, self-glorifying, self-love. And Jesus is going to say, it's not about that at all. It is not about that at all. And I'll just say, before we get into Jesus here, that we have, this is a great, it is so great that we have a king who doesn't just give us things to do that are abstract and just kind of truth. But he actually is going to demonstrate perfectly for us exactly what it looks like. And so um, what's about to happen in Philippians, starting in verse 6, is you're going to see Jesus start at a really high state and move, kind of descend with steps down into the lowest state, where he starts at a really high, exalted state. And so let's look at verse 6. Have this, verse 5 says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, though he was in the form of God. And so here's where it all begins. It, it's great. There's a great passage in Isaiah 6 that talks about how Jesus is in the throne room where everyone has to give an answer to him. Where he has at his, on the throne, he is in absolute control over everything where the greatest angelic beings created bow in submission to Jesus because the glory of those angels does not even compare to the majesty and the glory of Jesus Christ. 
So when they walk into the throne room, when Isaiah peeks into the throne room, he sees great angelic beings that have, they actually, this is how it reads, they have two wings specifically to cover their face because the glory of Jesus is that breathtaking. That's where he began. He began in the single most exalted place ever where all things ultimately had to give an answer to him on the throne. And you want to know what the truth is? On your best day, you and I, on your best day, would never, ever, ever be good enough to walk into the throne room on our own. Never. We would just stand outside just like Isaiah and look in and say, man, that'd be cool to go in there and experience that. But on our best day, you and I never, ever, on our best day, ever can enter into the throne room of Jesus and really know Jesus. But if he comes out of the throne room, if he steps out of the throne room, he could then make us able to come back into the throne room and really experience him a lot, to really know him. And this is exactly what he does. And he doesn't have to. He's not bound by anybody. He does not have to do it. Like John 10 is going to say, no one, no one takes my life, but I willingly lay, lay it down. And this is Jesus starting in the throne room in high, high exaltation. And now he's, begin, he's going to begin his walk down the, descent, down the ladder of dissension. Though he was in the form of God, he was God. It doesn't matter what his external situations were or his environment. Jesus was God regardless. Like, just because people on earth thought that Jesus was not God did not matter because he was God regardless. Like, he never ceased to be God. In 33 years of living, he never ceased to be God. He was just as fully God as he was in Isaiah 6 as he will be in between two thieves hanging on a tree. In those two situations, his identity is still God. Can you see the huge glaring implication for our life? That our identity in Christ never changes regardless of the circumstances or the surroundings. It just never changes. This is a great lesson for Christian conduct. That on the one hand, true humility flows from a deep-rooted, acute awareness of your identity in Christ Jesus. Just like Jesus had an acute awareness that he was divine, we can have an acute awareness that we are in Christ What a lesson there is for us in our Christian conduct to realize that before we can imitate God's Son in humility, we need to realize the high and holy, dignified calling that we have as sons of God, born again unto good works. When we realize who we are in Christ and what we have in Christ, it will not be hard to stoop to the lowest depths of self-abasement or self-forgetfulness and self-sacrifice. And so this frees us from having to build up our own reputation and name. And while other circumstances and what others think may change, our identity in Christ simply will never change. Everything you, you don't need to prove yourself to other people. What you need is for God to approve of you, and he has approved of you. Now be humble. Now look to others, because you have all of your needs already met in the gospel. Now you can look to others and genuinely care about others. Jesus was conscious of his own divinity. Look at 6b, next part of verse 6. Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. This word grasped right here can mean two things. It can mean like I already have and am seizing, 
like I already have and I'm seizing, or I'm trying so hard to reach a certain thing so I can seize it. In either case, Jesus does not do this. And the irony is that if there's one person that can grasp and claim a title, it's Jesus. Like if there's one person who can say, I'm God, and to really grasp that and to really cling to that, it's Jesus. But according to this passage, he does not even count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And that's, that's so ironic because he is God. Like, do you see the humility? This reveals a certain character about God. The, the character of God is not to jealously retain a title. It's not to jealously keep something, but it's to give and to serve. And this is Jesus demonstrating that for people. To say, listen, it is not about you trying to grasp on something and seize it, but it's about how well you can give and really sacrifice Although he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. What's interesting is Adam is a great example of how not to do this. Like with Adam, the first sin in Genesis, he was grasping to be God, was he not? I mean, Satan came to him and said, hey, Adam, by eating this fruit, you could be as smart as God. You could be as wise as God. And Adam thinks, I want that. I'm going to try to grasp that. And it's like Jesus is saying to Adam, I have the thing that you are grasping for. I have it. And I'm just going to consider like I don't. I'm just going to give back. Even though I have it, even though it's mine, even though I, I am God, I'm going to make myself a human and live as though I'm fully human and not God. That is a, a massive, massive truth about Jesus. Let's keep going. Verse 7, But made himself nothing. He voluntarily surrendered the appearance of divinity. He made himself nothing. And so this is, this is really crazy. This word, made himself nothing, means emptying himself. Your translation might say that. It means emptying himself. And here's what, here's what happened with Jesus. That he, he, on earth, for 33 years, he was fully human and fully God. He never ceased to be God. But he chose to kind of conceal his divine nature and kind of keep it withdrawn so that other people could not see it. So it's not that he ceased to be God. That's called heresy. But that he actually was fully God and fully human. When you're God, you can do stuff like this. I mean, if you have two complete full natures in one human being, this is what Jesus said. He said, I'm basically going to conceal my God nature and only reveal my human nature, generally speaking. There are points in the gospel where Jesus does reveal his divine nature, but it's to select few. So if you and I were to see Jesus just walking around, we wouldn't see, oh, he's God. We would see he's just Jesus of Nazareth. And so he takes his nature and he just, he conceals it. And this is what the, this word emptying means. It means he just kind of takes it and considers it not such, even though it is. Really kind of a complex truth here. But what's really crazy is, remember the other word for conceit that we learned earlier? Like the other, the really the literal, the literal translation of conceit is vain or empty glory. And so we have this idea of the more you fill yourself up with you, that's actually going to lead to emptiness. And then Jesus here emptying himself and that actually leading to fulfillment. It's completely backwards in how we would typically operate. That Jesus empties himself and in so doing demonstrates that true life is about self-forgetfulness, 
serving others, loving God, not about looking at yourself, not about filling yourself up with you. Then he moves on, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by being obedient even to the point of death. And so I'm just going to kind of summarize this. He was obedient right until death. Like, have you ever wondered, like, just think about this, that Jesus Christ died, that he, the wages of sinners have to die. People that sin, they have to die. We are, there's an inescapable, inevitable reality. What we all have in common with each other is all of us are going to die. That's inescapable. But Jesus Christ never sinned and therefore is not under this, this death kind of sentence. And we use, this is where things get a little bit crazy in Christian world because we, we say things so much that I think we lose and forget about the meaning behind it. Jesus died. Like there was God in heaven sitting on the throne in complete exaltation, coming down off the throne, descending even to the point of death. Why did he have to die? Well, there's three really big reasons. One is because it gave the opportunity for God to dump out his wrath that was supposed to go to you on Jesus so that you could be forgiven. That's one reason why he had to die. Another reason is to be obedient to the Father. Jesus is perfectly, joyfully obedient to God all the time. But the third reason is to become perfectly acquainted with humans. To become perfectly acquainted with human beings, he could— we don't have the option, man. We are going to die, period. And for Jesus to be fully human, because of that, because he wanted to be fully human, it's not like he could have just called down some angels and had him bail out of death. I mean, he could have done that, but he wouldn't. We don't have that option. We can't do that. If I'm on my deathbed, I'm probably going to die there. But Jesus, he had that option and chose. He goes, man, I'm going to become just like human beings. I'm going to become just like them in every way, including death. Including death. Yeah. With calm deliberation and full knowledge of all that awaited him at Calvary, he bowed his meek head below death's scepter. And then finally, he was obedient to death on a cross. There are a lot of people, we're about done here, there there are a lot of people in the world that would willingly sacrifice their life for something. There are terrorist groups that would blow themselves up for something. And there are people all over the world that, that would do things, that would literally kill themselves for a greater cause. And, but you know what? Um, in order to make their name famous or to be, made as, to be called a hero, like if you take 9-11, for example, as those, as those terrorists were flying the plane into the buildings, there was groups of terrorists all over the world really kind of claiming that they are heroes, kind of giving their name fame. And let me tell you something. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, there was not a group of people standing around the cross applauding him. He died the absolute single most lonely death that we could ever have imagined that no person has ever experienced or will ever experience. That he died the absolute loneliest death going from exaltation where he was glorified and perfect in a perfect way, to dying in between two sinners while people stood around and mocked him. He was butchered on a cross 
and in so doing, died the single loneliest death that anyone could ever imagine so that he could go all the way down and get us human beings so that he could then take us and raise us as high as he might go. So he went down into the grave, a lonely, lonely death. He could have chose a different death. He could have chose a nice death outside of Jerusalem on the pasture as the spring kind of came in and, and calmed over his skin and the angel sang his way out, but he didn't do that. He didn't do that. He was chose to be butchered on a cross and in so doing, having the wrath of God poured out on him so that he might go as low as he could possibly go to take all human beings and raise them up as high as he might go. And that's Jesus demonstrating perfectly humility. Perfectly humility. Humility in its purest and most perfect form, Jesus Christ. And so I want to close. I just want to read 9 through 11 and make a couple of comments Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So there's, there's a question here, and the question is not, will you bow your knee to Jesus? The answer to that is you absolutely will eventually bow your knee to Jesus. That there's going to come a day where the he is not going to conceal his divinity anymore. That that kind of concealing of his divinity will no longer be um, unavailable for us to see, but it will rather be on full display so that everybody can see. And when that day happens, I, it's not like there, Jesus is going to have a group of angels going around to the crowds and trying to quiet the crowds down and get everyone to pay attention. Guys, pay attention. Jesus has an announcement to make. It's just going to be complete. You're going to look at him and you're going to see Jesus and you're going to witness Jesus in his full divinity manifesting itself fully and the immediate and only response for every person that's ever lived is going to be bowing and worshiping in complete awe. That's it. And that's going to be a great day. So the question then is not are you bowing your knee to Jesus? The question is, are you bowing your knee to Jesus today? Are you bowing your name? Are you bowing your knee to Jesus today? That's the question. And so Jesus, here's where humility really, really comes in. Is Jesus is not only our great example of how to be humble, but because his mind actually lives in us, he is also the enabling power for humility. That he takes us from the two extremes, or we're overly positive or overly negative, whichever, and brings us into a right understanding of ourselves to where our identity is firmly in Christ and everything that we ever need and all that we need has already been given to us in the gospel. So now we're free to actually demonstrate this mind of Jesus to others. So the call on your, on your life this morning is to have this mind among yourselves, which has already been given to you in Christ. And so I want to leave you with a trajectory, with a direction for humility. And we can have the band guys go ahead and come on back up. And so you're never going to perfect humility, ever. As long as we're living on this side of the earth, we're never going to perfect humility. But what we can do is we can at least walk in the direction of, of humility. 
We can at least set a trajectory for our life where the the longer we live, the greater we reflect an attitude of humility. And so these are just some, some possible things that you can incorporate that might help set you on that trajectory. Number one, play golf often. It's my first one. Play golf often. Number two, laugh. You want to know something about prideful people? They can't laugh at themselves. They've got their reputation to uphold and they're nervous and anxious about what other people think. They just, they cannot laugh at themselves. That's lame. So learn to laugh. Study the attributes of God. This is a great thing to do. That true humility is a true assessment of yourself after an awareness of God's holiness and your sinfulness. So studying about God's holiness and attributes I think would really help you to see humility and to really grow in humility. Identify grace in others. Prideful people can't do this. They can't. They get jealous and envious of other people. But when you see, you can just try to think about the people around you and and where God has demonstrated grace in other people's lives and then tell them that. That would be a great way to begin thinking about others, to get in the habit of just thinking others. Is where, to to be absolutely okay with complimenting somebody. To invite and pursue correction. Prideful people cannot and will not do this. They will avoid this at all costs. But one of the great things about humility is that you can invite and pursue correction and receive honest feedback, and that doesn't affect your identity. Because your identity in Christ is rock, it's, it's already there. Listen to Scripture more than yourself. Apologize genuinely when needed. Sleep. Oftentimes, prideful people can't sleep. They're worried about their, their job or they're, they're stressed out or they've got, this kind of, they've got this kind of me-centeredness that keeps them anxious all the time. And it really just humble people know that no matter how difficult life gets and no matter how much life fluctuates, everything that you need has already been given to you in the gospel. Then you sleep at night. And number nine, to try and exalt the name of Jesus and worship your way through life in whatever it is that you do. To create and cultivate an attitude of worship in the mundane things or in whatever, in all things, to worship your way in life. And so and I'll close with just this statement and we're done. There can, be, there can come a real arrogance in ministry success. And this is for us as a corporate thing, as a corporate body. There can, there can come a real arrogance and pride when things look successful, whether or not, I don't know. So maybe the next stage of Stonegate Church, instead of focusing primarily on outward growth or growing our organization, maybe we should grow in our humility. God opposes the proud and gives grace to and exalts the humble. Let's pray together. Father, help us as, um, as we just took in just a lot. I know there was a lot of stuff this morning. God, I, I know that I cannot make people excited about you. I can't make people see you as going from perfectly exalted to completely and totally humbled, humiliated. And for people to see that and to feel awe for you. But I know that you can work that in the hearts of people. So I pray that your Holy Spirit would move in a powerful way. 
God, that we would think about your dissension into, into earth and as a human. And that that would create inside of us a desire for humility. That we would know that there is great emptiness when we're trying to fill ourselves up with us. That there is great joy when we are giving life to others because of our firmly fixed identity in you. Thank you for the gospel and for Christ. It's in your son's name we pray. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.